and welcome back to General Chat. This week's interview gets weird, wonderful, and at times outright philosophical. We talk about the parallels between werewolves and the queer community, why being paid in exposure is bullshit, and our thoughts on gaining clout versus cancel culture. Please enjoy this episode with podcaster and video essayist Sarah Zedding. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hello. So I am very excited to talk to you today. We're going to get into a little bit of everything, but before we do, I want to start at the very beginning. When did you start creating? Creating? Oh, generally? Uh, <laughs> I, oh, I'll forego the sarcastic response. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote stories as far back as elementary school and I always sort of made stuff up a lot but I guess um it was really in like middle school high school when I started thinking seriously about telling stories which I know isn't the thing that I'm sort of known for right now but uh I was a creative writing major before I was a, a film person and uh I think I've just always been critical of people and how they communicate with each other. So I always found myself thinking a lot about a lot of different things as regards to how stories are told and how they're constructed and what purpose they serve in culture. And uh, I've always had like sort of a keen awareness of that element of storytelling, I guess. So even even as far back in, as middle school, I was sort of that annoying person who would talk about like the the political implications of whatever thing. My opinions were nowhere near as developed as they are now, but <laughs> I uh, uh, I don't know. I I was always very. I was sort of a bad high school student, so I spent most of my time distracting myself by thinking about literally anything else, which is why I've been able to clock so many hours into developing my my opinions and I guess my ability to articulate them because uh, I wasn't doing the work I was supposed to be doing, which is really just the story of my life. <laughs> What a nice little self-reflective moment there. I think it leads right into my question, which is how do you think that hobby or, or that creative calling to narrate stories and create different worlds for yourself impacted your social circle growing up? Hmm. I had a tendency to be a liar. I wouldn't, that, that's, that's a little mean to me. I always had a very strong feeling about the stories that were going on in my head to the point that I like immersed myself and stopped having an awareness of actual reality at times. Mm. So I guess I, I role-played my, my, my narratives uh, very, very thoroughly. 
at times. So I would come to believe certain things about myself that were just not true. And I would tell people that these things were true when they weren't uh, stuff like, oh, I have the ability to move wind with my mind. Uh, I've been to this ancient kingdom in the woods, stuff like that. And I eventually learned how to like separate myself from that. But the result was that I had a, I didn't have very many friends growing up and I was always the weird kid. And historically I've always had kind of a hard time making friends because I can, can put people off sometimes and I, it takes a while for me to figure out how to open up to them. Like what is appropriate to say? I sort mm-hmm. of, mold, I sort of mold myself around whoever I'm talking to, uh, which is actually a bad habit I've been trying to get out of, but it, it, it was sort of a, I guess like a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in that I, I would be into this sort of escapist fiction and thinking about how nice it would be to have friends and that would alienate me from real people. So I would escape further. So I just got less and less social over time. Uh, but the friends that I did make were people that I remain friends with for a very long time. And I think that the consequence of it is that I, 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 I'm not somebody who can make a lot of friends, but I'm somebody who can make a handful of friends very, very well. Well, I think, I think that's very common. I think that a lot of people will relate to that. Uh, and let me tell you a story about my best friend. Okay. I, I've, I've known her for many a year. I've known her since I was in middle school. Uh, in fact, she was my, only friend in middle school and boy did we make up some stories you see we both wanted to be writers at the time and you know we would write things together we would pass uh, a folder back and forth and add a paragraph here and a paragraph there and we'd write things on our own Uh, but one thing that we did was we we had that same blurring of reality where Sometimes our stories felt more real than real life. And I think it was hard being growing up in the country and being a little alternative in an area that's very conservative. And so it was easier to make up a story about being a pair of witches and going out into the creek in the backyard and making potions and 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 doing things like that. And we were so thoroughly convinced that we were witches and that we were werewolves and that we were living in this alternate (laughs) timeline um, that when we did interact with other people, it was a bit like, oh, those things aren't real. Yeah. And sure, that did push people away. But I mean, we're best friends still. And it didn't keep me from having this podcast and reaching out and talking to people like you. Yeah. I actually had sort of a similar thing, especially in high school with, with werewolves. And to this day, yes. I, I have, I'm very opinionated about how werewolves are depicted in media. And I feel like they don't get a fair shake. And I had this entire like 
giant 12 book cycle planned about this elaborate werewolf fiction that I had come up with, with a, a friend of mine. And uh, I still think about writing that stuff some days. There's like one really good story in there and then a bunch of interesting ideas that need to be repurposed for something else. But yeah. Oh man, I I love the idea of alternate werewolf lore. And if you ever put that out there, please direct me to it because I want to see it. Yeah, I keep waiting for somebody somewhere to make a uh, a movie or TV show that plays with werewolves. It seems like for all the times we reinvent vampires, <laughs> we just, just sort of like keep doing the same thing with werewolves. And it's like, they're, it's, it, it's more than just like, ah, the beast within there's, there, there are more things as a, as a trans person, I found a very specific uh, attachment to the idea of becoming something other than yourself. And right. it was flipped for me because as like a normal person in the world, I felt alienated in my body and I didn't know how to quantify that at the time. So the idea of like becoming a, a werewolf, like the the wolf part was the part that was nice. That was the part that I liked. It was everything else that was garbage. So all the stories that I wrote were like, as a person, this character is alienated and can't relate to people, but through being a werewolf, they find community. Uh, and then there's a whole like spiritual aspect to it that is, is very important to me as well. And it's just, it's really not that hard to come up with an alternative frame of reference for how like mythical creatures are interpreted narratively. But I guess maybe it's, maybe it is hard because it seems like nobody, else, nobody really ever wants to do it. Well, it's interesting because I think, I think with vampires, <laughs> this is not how I thought this interview was going to go. I love it. I'm very here for it. Um, but I think with vampires, e even though a uh, vampire is like a very monstrous thing uh, that consumes blood, other people's life force to live, um, it's still typically like a straight white dude. Yeah. Like, you know, whereas the transformation of the werewolf is seen like the werewolf is seen as like otherness. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I really like the idea of community in that otherness, because I think that um, while I don't have the trans experience, I am a queer poly person. So, you know, that community, absolutely that otherness from the norm is something that is really easy to relate to. And as a, as a middle school and high school student, I don't think that, you know, I recognized the parallels there, but you really put it beautifully. It's interesting how, we don't know so much about ourselves and yet we know so much somehow. It's like a common thread among a lot of people that I know where it's like, I had no idea I was trans, but how funny that I continued to find and create stories that stories that had really strong like trans subtexts. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you, you say you grew up in the South, uh, like what state? Oh, no, I actually in middle school, I was in Pennsylvania, which was like, I was in very country rural Pennsylvania. Okay. Yeah. And okay. then um, 
I was in Southern Virginia, which is kind of South, but not quite as South as say Atlanta. Well, I'm in, I'm in Oklahoma and I've grown up in like Oklahoma, Texas. So I'm in, I'm in a, a different version of the South. It's always, a, it's always either uh, East North of me when people refer to South or kind of mm. where I am, there's different regions of the South. It's interesting. Oh, for sure. And what an experience to grow up uh, different in a rural setting, huh? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Hmm. Yes, great. We can have an entire <laughs> episode about that, I'm sure. Yeah, easily. Let's talk about let's talk about stuff. Your show. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just that you pick a topic and you give your point of view on it. And there's your signature witty humor and pacing and political pinnings. And it's all wrapped up into this video essay. Why did you start making Let's Talk About Stuff? I've always had strong opinions about things and the desire to share them, which maybe isn't the most charming quality in a person. But I felt like I didn't see a lot of the observations that I made in my head. I I didn't, I didn't see them reflected in sort of the critical conversation out in the world. So I don't know. I, I felt like I wanted to add whatever I could to that conversation. Uh, if it seemed like nobody else was saying the things that I was thinking and, and it just so happened when I first really started thinking about this was YouTube, when it first started really blowing up, I want to say in like 2010, 2011. And I, I spent a lot of time in like middle school, high school, watching animations on Newgrounds. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was a fan of like a lot of people of Ego Raptor mm-hmm. and he moved like a lot of Newgrounds people from Newgrounds to YouTube back before they punished people for not making a video a day. And <laughs> over on his YouTube channel, eventually he made a, sh- a show called Sequelitis that is like a, a, a video essay that's animated that details just like basic game design knowledge uh, in his style of like humorous presentation. And also I think around the same time as when I first encountered the uh, Mr. Plinkett reviews of the Star Wars prequels. And those to me are, those two things are sort of like the Ur video essay in that they laid the foundations for what I felt like was possible. And it's interesting that to me in terms of ambition of style nothing is really approached them like there's no other animated video essayists that i know of that are like as animated as as ego raptors and there's nothing as like high production value weird uh set design execution as the mr plinkett reviews were they're not that anymore and i think it's telling that in both cases, they neither of them really do that anymore the same way they used to. Uh, so it was really clear to me that YouTube as a medium from very early on allowed for a level of subjective critical analysis that we hadn't really seen before. And 
for whatever reason, I keyed in on the artistic potential of that very early on. And I don't, I'm not entirely sure what it was that was so attractive to me because, you know, I, I, up until 2013, I think I primarily considered myself a writer. That is, that is what I've been calling myself for almost a decade at that point. I wanted to write books. I had spent two years in a creative writing program. I had written a book, which uh, I won a couple of awards. And like, I, I don't know. I just, I liked the idea of mixing criticism with storytelling in some regard. I made my first video sometime after that. And I always thought like, I want to do this more. I don't know. It just, it just, it felt new and like a, a, a place and a platform to express these ideas that I had where I didn't have to have the same kind of academic rigor, I guess, that was expected of like academic criticism mm. uh, or just the basic kind of bankable stuff that you would see in a newspaper uh, back when they made those. Oh, my heart. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I it, it it's I like the ability to make a video on a subject that nobody had ever heard of, that nobody really cares about and not have to worry about it going through like an approval process. I think there's like the inherent freedom of that on top of being able to express your ideas however feels right to you so that you can be as like ambitious or unambitious as you like. So like things that are like Sean, who is a YouTuber who does just straight up political videos, it's just his voice and a picture of a skull with occasional video clips cut in, uh, no music or anything. And then you have ContraPoints on the other end who has these elaborate costumes and sets and intermissions, uh, custom-made music, and somehow they're both the same genre of video essay. And that, I think, speaks to the, the wide variety of things that are possible within the medium. And I was aware of that very early on, somehow. There's definitely a place for everything. And if there's not... If it doesn't already exist, you can create it. And there's something really beautiful and freeing about that. Yeah, absolutely. So your Patreon says that, let's talk about that, is vague because you're eternally non-committal. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something that I can appreciate because I made this show. I named it General Chat to give me the freedom to talk about whatever I want. And yeah. that can come with its own challenges. How how do you decide to focus or how do you decide what to focus on when you make a video? I get this question a lot and I feel like my answer changes slightly every time. Uh, so yeah, I picked let's talk about stuff specifically because I have a lot of interests and, you know, I, I for a long time I was planning a video series called The Metamodern Age, which was exploring... Uh, uh, art history theory of metamodernism. And I was going to do that through books and movies and TV, but also things like packaging and uh, uh, contractions and like the way that people communicate on the internet. 
uh, I had all sorts of different plans and I just, part of the reason why I didn't, I, I elected not to go to grad school is that I don't like the idea as like a person who enjoys film of having to dedicate the next like 12 years of my life, just studying one specific section of film history and make that like my thing. Cause that's, that's the wisdom of grad school is you've got to become the expert in that subject so that you'll get a, like a job through publishing. And that just sounds miserable to me. I like to learn about and know about a lot of different things. So yeah, it's intentionally vague for that reason, but also because I have uh, bipolar two disorder as well as ADHD. <laughs> so my work ethic changes a lot. Mm. And there are times when churning out a 45 minute video that's got all these complicated sections, I can do that in a week. And there are times when finishing a 15 minute video that's just me talking to camera can take me well over a month. And I like the vagueness of that title because it lets me not only have a vagary of the topic that I choose, but also in the format. I don't like the idea of having the set format that I do, where it's always me sitting in front of a camera, although I've been kind of settling in on a format lately. Uh, but as, as far as like what I choose to express or uh, uh, what I choose to make a video on, like I said before, I'm kind of just always thinking about things. And there will be times when I'll just, it seems like an interesting idea sort of falls across my attention and I find myself asking questions about it. So I'll sit down in front of an open document and just hammer out some words on it. And if it seems like it's an interesting thesis, I have, I have put it on the whiteboard. So I, on my dry erase board up in the corner, I have a whole bunch of little like bulleted titles for videos that are things that I think I would like to make. And I have a whole process of, you know, there are things that I think maybe could make interesting videos, but the, the, the thesis is not developed yet. There are things that I feel like I could do this month or in a few weeks. Uh, it just sort of depends on th that. Then there's an economic element, which is these days I'm paying all of my bills through Patreon, uh, which is a very recent development for me. And it's exciting, but it all comes with a very specific pressure, which is that I have to keep up some sort of reasonable pace of creating things. And while I'm paying all of my bills, I'm not quite like at the point where I'm, I'm able to live off of it. So I'm, you want to try to invite as many new people as possible. So there is this calculation that goes on of what I, I have this whole swath of topics that I want to touch on, but what of those things is going to actually grab attention and bring it to the channel and potentially bring me money. Uh, so I've had this Twin Peaks deep dive 
on my uh, on my plate for a long time. I did the first episode of it over a year ago at this point, and I have every intention of finishing it. It's at this point going to total at least eight episodes altogether, and I I I. I spend a lot of time, like I have tons of books about it and I, I read about it and I, I'm so excited to make these videos. But the thing is that the audience for like Twin Peaks stuff and David Lynch stuff is highly specific. And every every YouTuber that has done a video about David Lynch anything, it, you'll see it's one of their lower rated videos in terms of just view count. Like my most recent video as of our conversation is about the politics of the McElroy brothers. And there was actually a lot of calculation that went into that in terms of there, there were several other videos that I wanted to make. Uh, I had a video about Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild that I'd been wanting to make and a video about Star Fox 64 that I've been <laughs> wanting to make for a long time. Uh, but I put those on the back burner uh, and decided to do the McElroy thing. So I did a, a, a video in November that was essentially just me apologizing for not having released anything that month because I was busy working on my transitioning video that I released late in December. Right. And uh, in that, I mentioned that I was thinking about a video about the uh, uh, the McElroy brothers and like the politics of Monster Factory. And most of the comments on that video were people saying, oh, that sounds interesting. I would love to watch that. And in live streams and in various other avenues, people have kept bringing that up. And so it kind of stuck with me that this is actually a topic that people seem interested in. So I should probably do that. I knew also that I wanted to make a video about Homestuck in time for the 10th anniversary of the comic. Mm -hmm. So... I felt like, okay, I need to get this out now because it has. there's nobody else who's done anything quite like it in the video essay world. It has the potential to be to, to be successful because everybody loves the McElroys. Of course. Nobody wants them to turn out to be bad. And I sort of deliberately titled it in a way to make people think like, oh no, are the McElroys canceled? <laughs> that strategy very clearly worked. Because it's over uh, 150,000 views at this point, which is by far my 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 most viewed video. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna say the I saw it first from uh, one of my friends, Galactic Jonah. They're a wonderful artist. I saw it and I thought, hmm, <laughs> this is probably great because the McElroys are great. But I'm just I'm gonna give it a day and then I'm gonna come back to it. I don't know if I'm ready to to think negative thoughts about them. Um, and then I came back to it and it is a beautiful, just just wonderful little mwah, chef's kiss package of a video oh thank you yeah basically it, there's it's, it's a combination of what do i think i could make an interesting video about that nobody else could make what might people actually turn out to see which might benefit me economically and it's sort of a balancing act constantly where i will do a video that i think is going to pay dividends essentially uh, and then I'll do a few videos that are just for me that I'm not expecting people to really like. And uh, you, you just sort of bounce back and forth between those. But generally speaking, I never make a video about something that I'm not interested in. And these days I try very hard not to make videos that are just abjectly negative. 
I don't, I have an issue with YouTube as like a critical medium where a lot of film YouTubers specifically just talk about the things that they hate about movies. And Mm. I'm just not interested in that anymore. That just sort of bores me because it's very easy to see what doesn't work, but it's very hard to understand why the things that do work do because you can point at a lot of different elements of a film and say, these are good things that are well executed. Therefore the movie is good. But to my mind, you can see those exact same elements executed just as well in bad movies and it doesn't work. And so there's a deeper, almost philosophical question of like, why does this work? Why does this resonate? And that's the question that I'm always most interested in answering. And that's what I try to approach in all of my videos. So I really appreciate you actually touching on the the want to have, to, to create something that will be seen for the purpose of, I mean, not only because it's something that you enjoy, but specifically so that it will be seen so that more people can see the content that you make so you can make more content. Because I I think that it feels, it feels almost taboo a bit. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like we're not supposed to talk about the fact that we want to make money for doing creative things. Like we're supposed to just do it because we love it and we can't exist without creating. And it just bursts forth from us like a spring. And no, you don't have to pay Uh, me. I would do this even if I wasn't paid. And I feel feel like that's kind of bullshit. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, it's very bullshit. This is this is a a pretty serious bugbear of mine, and like everybody, I've had I've had to struggle with it. But it's like, especially on on the left, we talk a lot about socialism and abolishing capitalism, and that's something that's a project I believe very firmly in, mm. uh, as which will not come as a surprise to anybody who's watched a Macalore video. But <laughs> I, uh, you can't just do that. That's not a thing that you just wake up tomorrow and it's oh capitalism is done. We live in the socialist utopia now and everything's fine. Nobody asks for money ever again. Like we we have to live in the world that exists. I think there's a lot of political pseudo philosophy on Twitter and YouTube that deals with like ought to be's as as opposed to uh how things really are. And when it comes to asking for money, one of one of the videos that I plan on doing soon, but keeps getting pushed on the back burner uh, for previously stated reasons, is about the labor of art and how we systematically devalue the work that artists put into making art because it doesn't look like work. Uh, It's not pulling a lever in a factory or lifting logs with your big burly arms. It's often sitting in a dark room for 15 hours and you've written six words on a blank document, but that entire time is still work because you're processing things. And the idea that because the labor of art isn't traditionally labor, the way that we conceive of it, uh, that it, it deserves less payment is like, that's, that's bullshit and bad. Um, especially considering the place that art has in our daily lives, it's overwhelmingly the thing that the most people in the world consume 
compared to quite a few other fields. I think it's also that people buy into a um, a sort of uh, a propaganda of capitalism where we, we, we make everything, we, we categorize everything, we dilute things down to broad groups, and we devalue the work of individuals as much as possible. It seems like, you know, oh, you're just drawing a picture. That's that's not work. I could draw a picture. Yeah, but you didn't. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of modern art. And apparently that's a controversial thing because modern art is just a bunch of splotches on a canvas. And I was in Italy this past summer for a study abroad program. And I went, to, my favorite parts of that trip were uh, I got to visit a couple of different modern art museums. And I was moved to tears by a number of pieces because it's not just the work by itself, but it's the context in which it exists. I'm not going to go into this whole spiel, I promise. <laughs> uh, but like, it's just like the, the importance that it has in its time and history and how it led to the development of art that exists today. But when you just see the final product, it's very easy to say, oh, well, I could have done that. Uh, like, that's just a series of squares or with a Pollock, like that's just a bunch of paint thrown on a canvas. But you're not thinking about the time that went into a life that would allow for the creation of that at a time when nothing else like it existed and what that artist was thinking at the time when they did it and how it was received and the culture in which it was received. There's all of this work and context that just isn't considered. And you look at uh, a persona that somebody was commissioned to do and it's like, Oh, you're you're charging fifty bucks for that, but like, that's that's chump change. That's almost nothing, right? When you look at what a lot of artists in like a professional context, like people who do graphic design, what they charge like big companies fifty bucks for like a full character, especially if that character doesn't have an existing reference sheet, that's mm -hmm. nothing. And it's it's I find it I find that whole thing very frustrating. We really don't like to pay artists even when we pro proclaim to be uh, progressive, because we, again, like culturally, we devalue art and the work of artists and the place that they have in our culture and how hard it is to make art in this world. And on the one hand, like the internet makes it easier than ever to distribute it and like find an audience and be financially supported but you still come up against these people who think like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's taboo to ask for money because you should just love what you're doing. And like, if I were an artist, I would just do it for free. Uh, I'm like, no, you fucking wouldn't. I actually just had, I had a thread blow up yesterday about this where I know a lot of people who say like, well, I don't want to create my Patreon yet. Cause I want to wait until I have something to show for it. And the thing is, it doesn't cost money to start a Patreon. You don't have to mm -hmm. prove anything to anybody. You can just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Yes. People have this idea that I'm not good enough. And literally everybody has imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. We talk about it a lot on this show. Yeah. <laughs> it's like some of the most talented artists that I've ever encountered still, like when I talk to them privately, they're like, oh, I'm such a fraud. I don't know what I'm doing. And it's, it's basically impossible for anybody to internalize that because that's just how we are as a culture. But there's no committee that is designated to judge 
what is and what isn't worth being paid for. If you make a thing and people like it and they want to give you money, let them give you money. Don't apologize for people liking your stuff. Ask for money because you deserve it. If you put work into it, you deserve to be paid for that. I got really off on a tangent there. I just, <laughs> I get real, I get so, I get so frustrated with people who don't believe that they, they deserve money. Oh yes, I am. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I constantly tell my friends, charge more for your art, you know, look, put out commissions. And like you said, it's like, oh, I'll do 50, $50 for uh, a full body commission. And I'm like, no, no, <sighs> yeah. charge more money. Yeah. Uh, Yes, but I really like talking about it because I don't I don't think that we see that a lot. And I think that it's important to to stress that you need to be paid for the work that you're putting in. And I think the the loudest voice that I see talking about that is Amanda Palmer. Like she talks about, oh, yeah, yeah, she talks about asking for for money. Mm-hmm. She's a book called The Art of Asking about yep. Yep learning to become okay with accepting help from people who want to help you. It's a fantastic read. I recommend it to anyone. Absolutely. I basically my, sorry, but basically my entire conception of how to be an artist on the internet came from Amanda Palmer. I've been a fan of hers uh, since before the second Dresden Dolls album came out. Wow. And I, I, I saw, I saw the Dresden Dolls live uh, whenever they got back together in Dallas mm-hmm. uh, several years ago uh i have like the assigned art book that from uh uh, uh theater's evil yeah i i've been a fan of hers for a very long time and i always yeah felt that like you know she's she started off as a busker she was a, a living statue in boston she made her living doing that for a long time and she was able to actually turn that into a predictable like business model against all sort of conventional wisdom. And she took that philosophy into everything that she's done ever since then. And uh, I'm not as, as, as in touch with her anymore. Like I don't, I, I know she just released a new album and I listened to it and uh, didn't like, I didn't fall in love with it the way I've fallen in love with a lot of her music, but her influence is still very strong in me. And I think, the fact that she's one of the earliest adopters of Patreon and one of the loudest there and also Kickstarter says a lot of like how much she's like that philosophy has influenced uh, being a creative online in general. Yes, absolutely. Um, there's this idea that she puts forth that like uh, from being a busker and learning that like even non-vocally, if you give people the opportunity to support you, they want to support you. All you have to do is like put it out there and those who want to will. And, you know, I think we need to, sometimes we got to remind ourselves of that because it can be hard to do that. Yeah. And I'll just add to that, like my Patreon, uh, I have a $5 tier, which is like behind the scenes stuff. And I have a $10 tier, which is I say people's names out loud in my credits. And when I, fir- I, I, when I first premiered my Patreon, when I had like 200 subscribers, maybe, I thought that was ridiculous, but I stole those tears from H Bomber Guy, who's another YouTuber whose stuff I really like. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And I thought, why am I asking people to give me money for like my notes and scripts? Because this is basically like worthless. These things are just like, it's stuff that I scribbled. I literally took pictures of my notes and put them into PDF form 
and like, all right, here's repayment for your $5 investment. Uh, and like who would want their name read aloud in one of my videos? That's like, who the hell am I? But the thing is, nobody gives a shit until they do. And now those, those tears are like a big reason why I'm able to live off of Patreon. Okay, Sarah. So now I feel like after this episode, I think my next episode is going to be called the Patreon episode. And I'm just going to tell everyone about my Patreon. And that's I'm going to do it in your honor because you've really inspired me. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned a bit earlier that you've got a video called The Politics of the McElroy Brothers. And it's a cheeky homage to those sweet, sweet brothers. Uh, You talk a bit about the Adventure Zone. And, well, one of my favorite things about the Adventure Zone and D&D in general is the ability to be anyone you want to be. You can experiment with gender, orientation, new thoughts and experiences. I imagine it can be quite the experience for young queer folk. What Mm -hmm. are your thoughts on D&D as a way to play with gender roles? So... I uh, I don't have a ton of experience with D&D personally. I've always liked the idea of it, but I had the bad luck of just always winding up with people who we didn't gel very well mm-hmm. uh, uh, roleplay-wise. But I used to do uh, forum roleplays where somebody would have a... Uh, a story idea and people would just post back and forth uh, role-playing chapters in whatever this story is. I used to do that all the time. That's kind of how I got started writing. That, that, that plus fan fiction. I know a lot of people who consistently found themselves able to express something that they weren't able to in like D&D. And I love that. I love that that's... an experience that people get to have. I think, thankfully this is changing, but I think for a lot of people also, the reputation of D&D is as a generally masculine thing. Like it's it's a thing that the guys do and it's like a nerdy guy thing. And it's about like like raiding dungeons and killing monsters and going on these big epic violent quests, which... Nothing wrong with that, but I didn't really vibe with that super well. And all the people that I ever played with, uh, I was not out to myself, let alone to anybody else. Uh, I still thought I was a straight guy, which is just all kinds of wrong. And I, uh, in a way, I felt like if I, I think at one point I tried to make uh, I flirted with making a female character and whoever was the DM was like, Oh no, you can't do that. That's weird. Oh. And so, yeah. So for me, D and D was like another tool for kind of maintaining the, the patriarchy, which is a shame because that's not inherent to D and D itself. It was just how it was used. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad that, that that sort of culture is changing. And I think that the McElroys, to some extent, uh, can be seen as partially responsible for that. Uh, and also just the internet generally as like uh, tabletop shows 
get more and more popular and like board gaming in general has gotten a lot more popular among a lot of different people. Um, as far as like exploring gender roles in role play, I think this is another one of those things that we tend to talk shit on <laughs> kind of casually especially when it comes to fan fiction, but role play in general, it seems like we see it as like a frivolous thing, but it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful tool of self-reflection. This is the second time I'm bringing up furries. Uh, I know a lot of people who wear fursuits to conventions describe the experience of like, they're a shy, asocial person, but they put that suit on and they feel like, you know, they could do a dance in front of a million people. Right. That isn't like a fake person. That's not like something that they're pretending to be. Right. That is on some level who they are or it's a part of who they are. And that role play allows them to find this like core of bravery that they wouldn't have otherwise. And that's enabled through a combination of like the anonymity of having a suit covering your face. And also like the fact that hypothetically you designed it yourself. Like this is a character that you made or that you picked. Right. And that's powerful. That's an incredible thing. And I think everybody engages with that on some level. I think everybody has like, characters and media of some kind that they identify with and like they'll play out like they like to imagine themselves in that position and that's not derivative that's that's self-reflection uh and it's that's really important i think especially for 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 people who are questioning their gender i think it's like a safe space that allows them to experiment with gender expression without having to worry about ramifications of that Hopefully. Well, I think that's why you see in the, especially in the furry community, I think that's why you see such a diverse range of folks in the furry community, because you can be who you are without worrying about the trappings of your physical meat body. Absolutely. And I think, so you may not know this, but this podcast, when it first came out, I was mainly interviewing people that I had met through World of Warcraft, because I played a lot of World of Warcraft at the time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think that there's something similar in playing games, especially uh, MMORPGs, where you are just, you're talking to these people and you're meeting these people outside of their physical representation. So you're getting to know them on a personal basis and you're getting to know what exactly they're like without ever meeting them. And then when you meet them in person, if you are lucky enough to meet them in person, you get this experience of like, you know, the like essence of who this human being is. Mm -hmm. And then you meet them and you, and you put a face and a body to it. And, and, and they, there's often this moment of just like, man, I don't get to exist like this with anybody else because, you know, I, I am this, like, complete personality with you. I don't have to hide this this nerdy side of me, and, you know, and we're here doing this together where when I'm, like, at work or with my family, I don't get to exist like this. And I think that that is something that, that you know, within the furry community, within D&D, within fan fiction, role play, World of Warcraft, anything that takes you outside of, like, 
uh, the trappings of of some sort of um i guess societal norms is that what i'm looking for yeah yeah <laughs> something that takes you outside of societal norms you can just kind of like be more of who you are and i think that i think that that is a beautiful thing yeah i made a lot of friends on my forum going days and my fan fiction days most of my friends are people that i only knew online and that i still have never met in person um i my my girlfriend now actually uh, lives in another country. We we haven't met in person yet. She's going to be visiting soon, and oh. it's yeah, it's it's really exciting. But it's bizarre that this has been this is a relation this a type of relationship that I'm very used to, but it's also one that's it, it we're so close. And I feel like we know each other so well. And yet there's this like weird aspect of it where we've been talking about meeting finally. And it's like, what if we don't like each other? <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it is this, cause I have met people where I talked to them for years online and then I met them in person and suddenly it's like, Oh, this is you weird. Uh, granted, I was a very judgy kid in high school. So that very easily could have been my dumbass just being being an asshole but i um it, it, it is for as much as like the, the physical contact is is missing from online relationships there is something about just knowing that there's a person online but not having to worry about i can articulate my thoughts so much better in text than i can with my meat mouth oh same oh my god yeah i spent i spent every i've i think i've spent almost every single day of my life since i was like 14 on the internet for at least a couple of hours mm -hmm. that's not that's not necessarily healthy but <laughs> i uh i i i i think in text i write in text like that's how i communicate with people and i don't know there's there's something really powerful about uh about that like level of engagement where you you forego all of the niceties that are like a barrier to socializing when you're not a very social person yeah, absolutely. All of that tricky, like processing facial reactions and all the different distracting parts about having to socially interact that can be difficult. Like I definitely struggle with that. Uh, being out and about in social situations can be overwhelming. Um, mm -hmm. But it's just so funny that <laughs> we're both like, I have a real hard time talking. Uh, but aren't, Sarah, are we both podcasters? Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> uh, well, that's the that's the thing is that I if if anybody in the world asks me a question about TV and they say what's your favorite show, I'll have a hard time answering. Well, no, I won't with TV. I'll just say it's Lost because Lost is the best show on television, mm -hmm. even though it hasn't been on TV in a long time. But we won't go into that. I uh, but but generally speaking, like. I can talk forever about the things that I'm passionate in, passionate about. But if, if the conversation switches to something that I am not passionate about or don't know anything about, suddenly I am 
rendered speechless and I don't know how to put words together anymore. And lately I've been practicing the ability to just ask questions because I realized for a long time that when, when I get into conversations that I, I, I didn't know anything about, I would just sort of say, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. No, yeah, you're right. And not like actually engage. And so I would just come out of them not actually knowing anything. So I've been trying to be a little bit better about that lately, but it's like, that's the weird thing is that asocial people, I think generally, it's not that we are 100% across the board, like uh, unable to speak. It's that the circumstances in which we have things to say are very specific and I don't even think this is necessarily abnormal. It's just that the, the specific things that we give a shit about are not things that the broader culture at large gives a shit about. So the average person will be able to engage in, in sports talk a lot better than I can because sports is everywhere. And that's what everybody, at least in my corner of the world, that's what everybody's always talking about. Right. But like, there's, there's nothing inherently better or worse or different about like the fandom of sports versus the fandom of the McElroy brothers. It's just that the why the wider culture is like values one more than the other. So we who like to talk about our favorite monster factory episode, have a smaller audience. And then when that comes up with other people who don't know who the McElroys are, suddenly you're having to tell them your whole life story just to have a conversation and nobody likes that. So it's just easier to be quiet. Uh, Here's this thing. So there's something that I keep trying to articulate and I'm going to bounce it off of you because I think you may understand, but I, I I keep struggling to articulate it, but it's this, it's this feeling of like the re- the reason I do this podcast, the reason I share so many things of myself, the reason I I go, oh, you haven't heard of the McElroy brothers? Well, let me tell you about the McElroy brothers because it feels a bit like uh, hmm, maybe like you said a moment ago, sharing your life story. It feels a bit like sharing a piece of yourself, taking a piece of yourself and going. I love this things this thing for X, Y, and Z reasons because they relate to my life for X, Y, and Z reason. And if you can also love this thing and relate to this thing, maybe you can love and relate to me. Yes, absolutely. Um, I I mean that's one of the things that I try to do with my YouTube show is I'm I'm way more interested in trying to get people to like things that they hadn't heard of more than getting them to hate things that they already knew about. Uh, I did a video about this comic called Anya's Ghost that is a little young adult coming of age comic that I that stuck with me for a long time. And I didn't think anybody would like that video, but a lot of people s- claim to have gone out and found that book as a result of it and really liked it uh, and, and really liked that video. And, you know, I've, I've always had a hard time relating to a lot of people in my family. And part of that comes from being the youngest by a pretty wide margin. Like my brother and my sister both are like 10 years older than me. So 
there's a lack of common experience that gets in the way, but also like the things that we're interested in and the level of engagement in those things makes it really hard to communicate. Like mm-hmm. my brother watches some movies with his family, but when I talk to movies or talk about movies with him, it's very, 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 we're having two very different conversations. I'm always <laughs> having to like slow myself down and get down to a different level with him. Uh, but to get more to the point, I um, there's an XKCD comic that touches mm. on this that's from a long time ago, which is, oh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's basically pointing out that uh, we, if there's a thing that we like that there, we engage in some kind of fandom of, say it's Lost, and you're talking to somebody and Lost comes up and they say, oh, I've never heard of Lost. There's a there's a, a gut reaction that is, you've never heard of Lost? What's wrong with you? And that doesn't do anything to encourage that person to watch Lost uh, and plug in your favorite media thing there. Uh, so the XKCD comic is instead saying uh, uh, there's like one, one in 10,000 people will never have heard of this thing. So instead of treating it like this affront that, oh, you've never heard of this, instead say, oh, wow, you're one of the lucky 10,000 today. So congratulations, I've introduced you to this new thing and like excitedly tell them why they should give a shit. Oh, I love that. Of of course, the actual comic says that a lot better than I just did. (laughs) But that's what I tried to do in this McElroy video where... I, I very intentionally say at the beginning, if you've never heard of the McElroy brothers, congratulations on finding your new favorite content creators. Because <laughs> when I first wrote that script, I originally wrote like, if you haven't, uh, if you haven't heard of them, where have you been? What's wrong with you? And it gets a funny line to write and perform, I think, uh, in part because H-Bomber Guy did almost the exact same line in his video about Undertale. Uh but it creates an alienation. It's like it's it's accusing the person who hasn't heard of the McElroy brothers of a crime. And you don't want to do that. You want I, you want to when you love something, you want to encourage other people to also like it. And I like having conversations about the things that I like. And it helps when more people like the things that I like. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. No, it's cool to care about things. It's cool to give a good goddamn because I think, I think, uh, you know, when you're like an edgy teenager, it's really cool to be like, ugh, I just don't care. And you know, mm-hmm. it does, it does add some like, it's a little bit easier to take in all the difficult bits about growing up and being, being a teen, and and to have that kind of defense of like, well, I can't be vulnerable by caring about something. But I think right. I, I think that being vulnerable and opening yourself up to really being like, wow, I really relate to this content for these reasons is uh, something that shows a bit of maturity. But I wanted to touch on something you talked about, which was the uh, the difficulties of not leaning into dismantling something or, or be, being overly critical because I think right now in our culture 
there's uh, there's a lot mm-hmm. of money being made over rage. There's a there's a monetization of rage, and I think you know someone can easily make a five minute rant about why a game or movie is awful, slap an angry face and bold font on a colorful title screen, and get a lot of views and that sweet sweet ad revenue. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's quite a few differences between an anger-fueled rant and a balanced critique of something. How do you find that balance? Well, there are times when I'm just mad about something and I just want to complain about it. And that can be fun. It can be fun. No, you're not wrong. It's so fun. That, yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where... The the issue comes in, I think, is that that becomes uh, talking about like being a, a cynical teen. There is this sort of postmodern attitude of uh, truth is dead and nothing is real, so fuck it all. Right, and you know that has its has its uses, but I think eventually you have to grow out of that. And I did a video about the comparing the fight scenes of preacher and iron fist. And uh, that's from a, from a writing perspective and a thesis perspective, that's still one of my favorite videos that I've ever done. But I spent a lot of time just looking at this one fight scene in iron fist and thinking about all of the ways that it doesn't make sense and how I don't like it. And it just seems like there's so many ways it could have been better. And it's like, why am I, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> when I am, I'm literally choosing to do this. And the thing is that that was the most popular video on my channel for a long time. And it's easy to, it's, it's, it's fine to do those kinds of videos every once in a while. And it's fine to like be deconstructive and mad about stuff. Like I say, it's like, I enjoy watching a bad movie with friends and getting drunk and yelling about it as much God, as anybody. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That's such a, such a good time. But I think it's really, really, really easy to fall into a mode where that's the only way you engage with something. And I think this also gets back to the difference where the it's, it's very easy to quantify wh- why something doesn't work. It's very easy to point at like, you, you know, this shot is not very well composed or this performance is bad any number of things. But when something works, it's really hard to quantify why. And there is a a, a classic book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance by Robert Persig, which is one of my favorite books. And there's a whole sort of reputation that that book has, which is really unfortunate. But the the main idea behind that book has influenced me a lot, which is he is trying to create an idea of metaphysically understanding what quality is quality in this sense, meaning like the essence of what makes something uh, good. And he describes it as like this pre-conscious reaction that you have, which isn't logical and by definition cannot be described. It is a feeling. It's an emotion. And I think that that, that for me is the root of why it's so hard to make videos or analysis about the things that you love, because fundamentally you cannot uh, objectively quantify 
why something works. You can deconstruct it and find the elements that contribute to why it works and like what it executes well on. And that's great. But to me, the deeper, more interesting question is like, why does it move you specifically? And for me, what I've come to realize is that that as a project of analysis is far more challenging and far more interesting than the alternative. And it's a lot more healthy because it's not about rewatching something over and over and over and picking out all of the little flaws and finding all of these little jabs that I can do for, for cheap jokes. It's about not just reflecting on the work, but reflecting on myself and how I see myself in the work and like what it means to me and the world that I live in and the world that it came from and like finding some sort of resonant message that I think expresses some soul of something to an audience. And what I've heard from people who watch my more recent videos is that that seems refreshing to them because it's, uh, it's about love on some level. It's about finding what makes you feel fulfilled on like a spiritual level rather than just quantifying things through lists. And I think that the balance there is being honest with yourself and, and, and really like confronting why do I make things and what do I really have to say? What am I adding to the conversation? How am I making the world a better place? Am I really improving anybody's day or their week or their life by talking about the various problems of the seventh season of Game of Thrones? Not really. I think that that anger-based content lends itself to a particular subset of fans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm talking about in particularly the entitled fan. The fan who thinks that the content they consume can and should be changed to fit their idea of what is acceptable. And while I do think we should be critical of what we consume, I also think that it can lead to feelings of entitlement. This thing is bad because of so-and-so reason and you need to change it. Well, how do we critique something and still enjoy it? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, that it's, it's difficult, I'll say. And it's taken me a lot of work to arrive at some kind of solution and I still don't know if I have entirely figured it out, but here, so I, I come from a film studies background more recently, and I know a lot of people who make it a point to watch every movie that comes out and who goes back and watches everything that they can, every best picture nominee and everything that's, you know, they find like best of lists and they're like, I'm going to go through the AFI top hundred films in order. And like, that's a fine thing to do. But what I discover is that these people tend to be far harsher in their criticism than like a more casual uh, film goer. And what I've realized is that when you, it's your job, like when you treat it like a job 
to watch every movie or read every book or, or play every video game, you lose some of your ability to just enjoy something for what it is. And it's easy to forget that that's the experience that most people have. Most people aren't engaging with a medium on like the continuum of everything that came before. And I have harshly stepped back my feeling of obligation that I need to be involved in any particular aspect of a culture that I am like invested in. Like, I no longer feel like I have to watch every movie. I don't, I forgot the Oscars were even a thing until they happened this year. <laughs> and I haven't seen a, an, a best picture nominee in theaters since uh, get out. And I would not have expected that film to be a best picture nominee. And like, I just, you know, I realize that I have very specific tastes and if it looks like a movie isn't going to be to my taste, I don't watch it. And I don't feel obligated to have an opinion. I get a lot of questions like, what are, what's your opinion on Green Book, which is this year's Best Picture winner? I don't have one because I haven't seen it. And I'm going to leave it to the people who have seen it to have that opinion. And like, it, wouldn't, it would just make my life worse if I like, sought that movie out, knowing the critical consensus is it's bad, and then turn around and say, yep, it's bad. Great. Cool. Good. <laughs> Glad we had this conversation. I, I, I also think I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Marvel movies and I've, I've seen every single one in theaters except for Ant-Man and the Wasp. And I wanted to see that. I just missed it. There's nothing against that film. I recognize those movies are full of issues but I still really enjoy them. And the way that I try to engage with media is not based on some abstract objective template of what a good blank is, but based on my perception of what this thing is trying to do. So when I go to a Marvel movie, I know that what they're trying to do is make a pretty harmless, relatively entertaining, big budget movie that that just is full of action and quips and lets you forget the world that you're in for like two hours. Generally, I think they succeed at that. I have fun and I turn off my brain and that's a luxury that I have uh, with, with the privilege that I have. But uh I've been pleasantly surprised by some of them, but I think that there's something to be said of just like everything is political and everything has much, much larger implications than with the author intended, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you personally have to engage in that all of the time. It's okay to like things that the wider culture thinks are bad. And as somebody who like, I I've, I've made a big deal of, crafting myself around other people for most of my life. Uh, it's been a weird sort of revelation stepping back and realizing like, oh, I can just just like things. Like, I don't believe in guilty pleasures. I don't believe in feeling like uh, uh, this thing is bad, therefore you can't like it. Like, if you like something, that's all that really matters. And I think we should always be open to criticism. But 
you hear people say like, oh, you ruined this movie for me. And my reaction to that is like, well, it must not have been a very good movie then. Like if your perspective on it was that frail that a video on the internet ruined it for you, then either the movie wasn't very good or your perspective on it wasn't very good. And I think we have a hard time, especially if we don't like formulate our thoughts uh, 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 critically that often when we encounter somebody who does, we just sort of opt to agree with them. And that can be kind of dangerous at times. I don't know. I just think you just got to be okay with like liking things and not feel obligated to engage in every single thing that comes across uh, uh, the, the, the wider cultural conversation. There's a bit of a moment that I think you have to have because I think folks that get really into a certain thing for instance let's say i don't know i'm a i'm a big fan of critical role for instance um but i also understand that sometimes like the people who make critical role are human beings and sometimes there will be mistakes that happen or perhaps in the past they didn't include as many guests that uh, were people of color as they could have, and moving forward, they will do that more. You know, I think I think that there's room to be a fan of something and go, "Hey, this is where you could grow," or "Hey, this particular thing is problematic," and still enjoy it. Yeah, there's room for duality there. It doesn't have to be a black or white type of thing. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I think the McElroys do really well is they accept criticism. And there is a kind of dangerous tendency online to not forgive mistakes. Mm. And there's a difference between criticizing somebody and like throwing them in the trash, I guess. Canceling someone. Yeah, canceling someone. I, I feel like there's a continuum of being problematic. How could they change or grow to, to not be that way? And are they making the effort to do so? And yeah, all of that's wrapped up in it. Yeah, I, I, I get, you know, I've been on, like I said, I've been online since I was 16. I'm sure I said some really problematic shit. I'm sure I said probably really racist, racist things. I probably typed some slurs without realizing it because I was an edgy teen in 2008. I was an asshole. If somebody were to find that stuff and, you know, publicize it on the internet right now, I would say, yeah, that was me. And I was wrong to type that. And that's pretty fucked up. And I apologize, but that's not me anymore. I've learned my mistakes. And I feel like the things that I've done since then kind of speak to that to some extent. And I, I try to grow and learn as much as possible. And I try to accept all criticism uh, when it's when it's meant in good faith. There has to be room for people to make mistakes and grow and learn because everybody fucks up. It shouldn't be a crime to make mistakes. Now, there are obviously, a, there's, there's obviously a large gradient of what counts as a mistake. And you know, if you're somebody who like serially sexually harasses people, mm. that's not really something that you should be able to come back from in, in a social context. Well, there's mistakes that are literally a crime and 
that's yes. when it is a crime to make a mistake. But I think other than that, yes, there's a there's a gradient of like if someone said something ten years ago that was really awful, and they have you know since then shown a pattern of growth and change and improvement and tried to make up for it and become different. I do think that there's room to say, oh yeah, that was pretty shitty, but who among us hasn't said something shitty in the past? Let's move on. I think current cancel culture makes that a bit difficult. Absolutely. And I feel like that that culture is 100% unsustainable, especially as the generation that grew up on social media that is still around comes into adulthood. Now that every second of our lives is documented and all of our thoughts are documented publicly, no one is going to be able to get away with anything, to put it in a, in a crude way. But like, oh boy, I don't know how to deal with this because there are always legitimate criticisms of mm-hmm. people. And, and, I never want to say that if something bugs you about some a way that somebody is behaving, that you shouldn't find some way to express that. Right. I generally think it's better to like message them personally as opposed to do a, a call out post because then it becomes a competition. Right. And that just doesn't that just doesn't do anything. It doesn't help at all. There's been a conversation lately about this something called social capital, the idea of gaining clout as a resource and yeah there is this idea that you by like calling out other people okay i even engaged in this recently so shane dawson tweeted some some really dumb things recently and i took some some jabs at at those tweets because i thought they were funny and i that those those tweets that i made got a whole lot of likes and i gained some followers from that uh Regardless, like I did gain some social capital from that. And there is a temptation in the same way that there's temptation to always be like loudly negative with your criticism. This is like, it's very easy and it's very easy to be on the right side when everybody already agrees with you. And when somebody does something that's very clearly bad. And I think that that can lead to a really dangerous feedback loop where you're not really engaging with things in good faith and you're kind of just only seeing the worst in everything and everybody. Right. You're looking for a gotcha moment. Yeah. And I don't think that that's fair, but I also don't know how you deal with that. I don't know what the solution to that is because you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater there. Like You don't want to say that there's no room for criticism. It's difficult. Yeah, it is difficult. And I think it's just understanding that human beings are difficult and contain multiples. I think that a good way to combat that is to practice radical empathy or radical compassion mm. for your fellow human being. And I think that uh, the reason I use radical with that is because in a, in a, in a call out and a cancel and clout culture, I think doing something like practicing compassion and practicing empathy is a radical act, especially within our capitalist society that seeks to profit off of its people. Absolutely. That's, I mean, that's exactly why I emphasize finding the things that you love and understanding why you love them. Because in the world we live in today, 
that's generally considered the least valuable and least valid uh, perspective to take. Mm-hmm. If if you were to just write about that in academia, you would be your paper would be rejected outright because yeah, it's not objective. So I, I absolutely agree with you. Oh, thank you. Well, whew, that was a roller coaster. Yeah, we're gonna take it. We're gonna take it a step back, and we're gonna talk about taking a look back. We're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about nostalgia because a lot of fandom is nostalgia based. You know, I mean. Heck, a lot of, like, current content is nostalgia-based. How many sequels are we going to get this year? I guarantee it's oh, a lot. It's it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I personally think that, you know, as long as we're nostalgic for an age that never really existed, we can't create a better age right now. We can't create better queer content because, you know, we're thinking of, oh, what we should have done. We need to be pushing to make content that's relevant to current experiences. And I think that your your video on transition touches on this idea that, that, you know, by looking back, we're constantly muddling and changing our memories and creating this false narrative. Did you find that making that video changed your narrative? And were the responses to it cathartic in any way? I will say that making that video, I treated it like an exorcism. And I pushed it out to to get it out before uh, the start of 2019. And in order to do that, I spent like six consecutive days, every hour of every day, just editing and pushing to make that thing happen before the end of the year, because I wanted all of that stuff behind me going into 2019. Because this past December was a very large milestone for me in a number of ways that I cover in that video. So having that video behind me, it has worked as like a monument to the entire rest of my life before now. And the result has been that it it, it really doesn't haunt me as much as it used to. And I find it both like good, uh, but also kind of weird and interesting that ever since then, uh, the stuff that I've been making is, has been getting a really positive response. Granted, I've made two videos since then, but like my McElroy video did really well. My subscriber count almost doubled and it just feels appropriate on some level in, in that regard, which is weird. Uh, but that's getting off topic. I, <laughs> the response to that video ha- has been overwhelmingly positive. I can count on two hands the number of like gross transphobic comments that I got. And I think it's up to like 400 comments that are on that video. And I've read every single one of those because I wanted to make sure I was moderating them and not letting the garbage get through. And, you know, I, 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 I'm not inclined to feel like I have anything important to say or that my stuff means anything to people. But that video forced me to really truly reconcile with the fact that my my work has the capacity to speak to people. That the, the responses to that video, there were countless comments uh, to the effect of like, I was I, I was closeted and this video helped me come out or I didn't realize I was trans and this video helped me realize that. Uh, I'm a cis person and I didn't know what it was like to be trans. And now I, I understand. I showed this to my cis partner who always had a hard time, like getting it when I was trying to talk to them about this stuff. And now they get it. Or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm cis and I showed this to my trans partner. And there's so many people saying like, 
this articulated something that I couldn't find the words for. And it's like clarified the world for me on some level. And that's been really overwhelming and cathartic for sure to hear so many people express how that video touched them. There's one person a little while back who posted that they came out as a result of my video. They came out to their family and their family disowned them. And they're now living with their, their some, a, a friend. They ended that story by thanking me oh. for making that video. And I had a full-blown panic attack after I read that comment. I, I messaged my girlfriend, and of course she was asleep at the time, just like I sent her a screenshot of the comment and said, I don't know what to do about this or how to feel about this. This is too much responsibility. This is too much power. I don't understand the idea that this video that I made led to somebody losing their home. The worst possible thing that can happen to a trans person in a lot of cases. Young trans people come out and get disowned by their family and become homeless and die on the streets all the time. The thought that this video that I made encouraged somebody to start down that path freaks me out. And the fact that they're thanking me for it, like I know that you know if somebody is trans, I think they should come out and I think they should start transition if they feel like that's the road that they want to take. But it's still, it's a lot. It's scary. And, uh, you know, the reaction to that video has been cathartic and it's been scary and it's been sort of eye-opening for me. And it's also been kind of sad because when I made it, I, de I deliberately designed it to be a little bit offensive to the senses in that I didn't want the viewer to relax for very long. So anytime it gets into a flow, pretty soon there'll be a sudden change that that is meant to jerk you out of that like relaxation. Yeah. And generally I wanted it to be very like over the top in its expressiveness and its emotiveness. And like, I, I didn't think anybody would would like it or see anything relatable in it. I was making it for me. And the fact that so many people, over 20,000 people at this point, liked it, saw themselves reflected in it. The number of people who said uh, they were moved to tears watching it to the point where they had to watch it in in across multiple sittings, that, that they elected to do that. Like they, they got to a point where they had to stop because they were feeling so emotional, but they came back anyway, multiple times. And my girlfriend was like this too, which is so fucking wild because she made the music for it. <laughs> but like, I, uh, it's, it's depressing that so many people have had that experience. What I will say is there's there's this universal human experience of going through turmoil. And there's different levels of trauma that people go through and experiences that people have, but we still understand, you know, the feelings of sadness, of happiness, of turmoil, of struggle, of of, of victory. We understand those things and there's a visceral reaction to it because, you know, yeah. you put yourself out there and you put your experience out there in such a way that folks who watched it, especially myself, who is a uh, cisgendered woman, I, you know, I've had experiences in my life where, where I was like, yeah, I really understand these, this, this kind of turmoil and like knowing that someone else went through that is both comforting and terrifying and sad and, 
and reassuring in some way. And so it really is a, an emotional journey. And I think I think that there can be a lot of pressure on queer content creators yeah. to be a voice for their communities. Do you feel, mm-hmm. especially after that video, that you have any responsibility to your audience to present your content in a specific way or to be like, quote unquote, the right kind of content creator? So I will, I will, I will start this by relating my experience to that of uh, fellow YouTuber ContraPoints. She is also a trans woman and she makes very political content and it's all very theatrical. My re- my relationship with her professionally is 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 complicated, but I've seen the reaction to her go from everybody loving her to a lot of people really disliking her and especially a lot of people in the trans community. And I've been a big defender of her for a long time. But when her most recent video came out, I was on my Discord server and I, I noticed this thing that was part of a pattern, which is that anytime a new video of hers had come out, everybody starts saying, oh, Lord, here we go. Not because of the video, but because of the reaction. And I realized that like all of the people in my Discord server who are vast majority like trans non-binary folks, they we're starting to see her content, even if they liked it, as an inevitable like asteroid, like, like a meteor on its way to impact our lives. And I started to experience this too, where uh, some of one of her more recent videos, like I found myself getting into so many arguments with people and getting so frustrated at, at, at the various levels of discourse about it, where good faith arguments were getting mixed up with bad faith arguments. And I just got so exhausted and I realized I'm starting to feel the same way where it's like, there's something about the way that she chooses to approach making content that it started to make the people like other trans people feel wary, feel like weary, I should say, uh, because folks who aren't trans uh, or non non-binary f- approach that from a from a particular perspective that makes us feel like alienated and dehumanized sometimes. So I think about that a lot when I'm making my own stuff. I've made a couple of videos about being trans, um, and I make a point now of at the very least including the fact that I'm trans in every single video that I make. Uh, And I have a podcast that's just me talking about trans issues. So I I do feel a level of responsibility, especially as my audience has grown, to be a a positive voice and like, I don't want to say role model, but I mean, that's kind of that's kind of where it where it goes anyway. It would be very easy for me to feel like, okay, I am now the transgender YouTuber who's known for sensitivity and talking about serious subjects. Uh, so that's all of that I can talk about now, which is why the first video that I did after that video is about like why I dislike game of the year lists. <laughs> and then it's just me talking about indie games that I liked. I try to refute the responsibility by doing things that don't fit that 
but don't also like offend the people who liked whatever it was that I, I made before. It's, it's like everything else. It's a difficult balancing act. I think it certainly is a, a difficult balancing act because I think, I think there's a tendency, especially on YouTube to, to find that one thing that works and then keep repeating it over and over again until the end of time. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that, you know, if you find what works, that's great. But I do think that really limits you. Uh, there, there are a couple of like big content creators that I think have incorporated, um, inconsistency into the expectation of their channel and I think if you can learn how to do that you've got it made. There's Jenna Marbles who's a classic beautiful gem of a person Mm -hmm. Um, and she's like (laughs) I upload every Wednesday slash Thursday because she knows that technically you know she used to upload on Wednesdays but now it's more on Thursdays and it gives (laughs) yourself that wiggle room to like be human and try new things and make mistakes because you no one person does one thing forever and and just following that sweet sweet ad revenue or what like if you keep catering to a certain type of market by making only one type of video your fan base expects that one thing and then you are locked into place and it's very limiting and it's stifling and once we can all figure out how to just like hey let's all experiment with these things and and just throw something at the wall until we find what we enjoy you know i think is uh when we find that it'll be perfect everything will be solved (laughs) (laughs) absolutely uh yeah i i mean right now i'm i'm in this position where the two videos of mine that are exponentially more successful than anything else on my channel are videos that are responding to individual people and like reading themes into their work as regards to them personally so and they're both figures who are like i mean it's it's counterpoints in the mcelroy brothers like popular people who elicit conversation it'd be very tempting for me to then say, all right, I'm just going to do that now. God, that sounds miserable. (laughs) I don't want to do that. So yeah, in a sense, it's like you're leaving money on the table by doing that because you find something that works and then you make a name for yourself doing that thing. But like, it's not enough to just make money doing the thing. It's not, it's not about finding like what's successful. It's about finding something that works that, doesn't make your life worse. And like you say, you know, nobody does the same thing forever. I often relate this, this anecdote about uh, your movie sucks where his channel, uh, he started a, a, a positive critical analysis of Synecdoche, New York, like five years ago. And it's this really long, like six part analysis that he still hasn't finished And those were some of his least popular videos because nobody goes to a YouTube channel called your movie sucks to hear about a movie that doesn't suck. (laughs) And like, that's gonna, I'm sorry. That joke is going to be one of those things that like people who've known me for a long time are like, Oh, there goes Sarah. She's saying the thing about YMS again. I know I've said that on multiple (laughs) different places at this point. Anyway, I, I just think it illustrates a good point that like, it's not, I mean, it's in his name or in, in the channel's name, uh, which is limiting there, but it's also like you do the same thing over and over and over again. Eventually when you try to branch out, people feel like 
you're betraying them. So it's very, it's very important to me to avoid that as much as possible. And I feel like if you don't diversify the content that you create, you get stuck in a box and no one wants to be stuck in a box. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. Um, so I want to touch on a couple things before we wrap up, because you did mention your podcast, which is called trans questioning. You should look it up. Listener, I'm talking to you. Yes, you with your headphone in. You've got one in your left ear. You're typing. You're doing your work. I'm talking directly to you. You should look it up. You should listen to it. <laughs> yeah, Kevin. Yeah. Ooh, someone's going to be real excited by that. <laughs> but it's called Trans Questioning. Why did you name it that way? And how does it relate to the content of the show? So I I named it Trans Questioning because... I, um, so it was in like July, 2017, I started very rapidly questioning my gender because I was at a point where a lot of things were going wrong for me <laughs> all at once. And I, uh, I guess ContraPoint's video about dysphoria came out at that time. And a couple of other things came out that were expressing non-standard perspectives of being transgender, like all at the same time. And I found myself feeling like that's actually how I feel all the time. Wait a minute. Am I trans? Is that what the problem is? So I started doing research. I'm the sort of person who, if I have a problem, uh, I will sit and I will dig through years of forum posts and how to's to figure out a solution. I'm, I worked grip electric and film sets for a long time. I'm very much a problem solver. Uh, so when I found myself asking this question, I went to Google and started trying to find perspectives to see like, am I, am I trans? Am I allowed to just say that I'm trans? What does that even mean? And I realized really fast that basically everybody who was writing about being transgender at the time was already on the other side of it, had either started HRT or been on it for a long time or had known that they were trans for a long time. And I was specifically looking for perspectives of people who were at the stage that I was at where I was questioning, but I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't know what that meant for me. So I decided to document my thoughts. And it just seemed appropriate to call it trans questioning. Uh, and, and that was sort of the early version of the show was just me talking about my experience transitioning. And I think to that end, the first like nine or 10 episodes are probably the best because I, re I, I recorded them over a stretch of time uh, before knowing how I would use them exactly. And I think they do something that not, not a lot of other things do, which is just let, let somebody be honest about their questions and like their feelings and doubts and worries about being trans, uh, or, or, like not even knowing if they are trans, uh, without the qualifications and like asterisks that you see from anybody who's writing about it from the other side, uh, without the assurance that yes, you definitely are trans and you should just know at this point. And so that's, 
that's sort of the spirit of the show is asking questions about what it means to be transgender. You take questions. Would you have written into a show like yours for advice? And what do you think you would have asked? It's hard to say if I would have written into a show like mine. Actually, you know, I think I would have because I looked for podcasts that were sort of in a similar vein to what I was looking for and I couldn't find anything. There were a few like uh, there were a few shows that seemed like they might be what I was looking for. Uh, but then I listened to a few episodes and they weren't quite. So I guess it's I guess conceivably if I had found a show that was the thing that I was looking for, I might have felt the desire to write in. At that time, if I had written in, I probably would have asked some version of the same question I always get, which is, here is a truncated version of my experience, but I don't feel like I'm trans. Is it okay for me to just say that I am? Um, am I trans enough? Is basically like the, the, the first question that most trans people ask. Mm. Because there's all of these like general misconceptions about what the trans experience is and the things that you need to experience in order to call yourself trans. Right. And it's, it's basically all just gatekeeping. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the, the scariest thing for a lot of people is like, I, you know, I was uh, 28 when I started questioning. Uh, I'm 29 now. I turn 30 next month. I had gone my entire life, never even really thinking that I could be trans. So getting to the point where I was, actually asking that question uh i think for a lot of people it's like that 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 moment is really stressful and scary because it feels like the right answer but it feels like it shouldn't be and you kind of just want permission i think uh from an expert quote unquote so that's probably what i would have written because that's what so many people ask me uh, am i trans enough and the answer is always yes you're always enough absolutely yeah. There are people who say that uh, you need to feel a specific type of dysphoria in order to be trans, or you need to fit this certain medical criteria in order to be trans. Oof. That's just gatekeeping. Don't listen to them. Uh, yes. I think I think we could do an entire episode on, on the harmfulness of leftist gatekeeping, especially when, oh. when the right is so, so willing to accept anyone who will come into their dark clutches. Uh, yeah. But that's a very heavy topic that we don't have time to get into. <laughs> um, and I've asked you a lot of heavy questions here, so I'd like to end on a silly note. All right, so here's a nice little goofy question. If you were in some sort of, I don't know, hit by radioactive lightning situation and gained superpowers that were based on your personality, what superpowers do you think you would gain? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> I like that. I was expecting it to be like, what superpower would you want? And I'm like, oh, oh fuck it. But, but that level, that, that extra bit of spice there, that's good. Oh, thank you. Based on my, based on my personality. Cause that, that invites all sorts of speculation, doesn't it? Um, just a little bit, just, just enough. I think uh, my gut reaction would be some sort of like werewolf adjacent mutation of some kind, but you know what? No, I'm going to actually, I'm going to run with that because there's a story that I've had in my head that I've wanted to write for a long time that is basically about a werewolf who gets stuck in their like wolf form where they're like a bipedal wolf person 
who is just like living in a house uh, with a bunch of people. And there is this weird, dramatic tension that I, there's something about that that feels very relatable to me, but also tragic and like terrifying, which is I'm closer to being like the person that I want to be, but I also physically lack the ability to communicate in the ways that I'm used to. So I feel like from the perspective of like dramatic irony, the sort of power that I would get wouldn't be so much a power as it would be a physical being that is capable of the sort of social and emotional and physical feats that I wish that I had the energy to do, which also enhanced all of the all of the the worst aspects of myself socially as well. Where like my my all of my energy and my excitement to 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 be around people is complicated by the fact that I literally cannot be due to this body that I have. That's taking it from a, in a slightly different direction than I think you meant it, but that's that's the sort of like X-Men storytelling that I like where they go away from just like combat superpowers to like weird mutations that allow for interesting storytelling. So there we go. There we go. <laughs> I actually know that was a nice little peek into your thought process there into your into your self-assessment of what your strengths and weaknesses are socially. Mm. Very fun. Thank you. Yeah, building the case against me. So <laughs> finding, making, filling out an index card with all of my fears. Ah, uh, you figured it out. God, ah, uh, I went through all this effort to reach out and set up a podcast, and you just figured it out in the ninth hour. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sarah, could you tell everyone? where they can find the content that you are creating, how they can support you, where they can find you on social media, all of that good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, the, the best place to find me is on Twitter at HMS No Fun. Everything is linked from there. My YouTube channel is called Let's Talk About Stuff. My podcast is Trans Questioning. Uh, my Patreon is patreon.com slash L-T-A-S, which is the initials of Let's Talk About Stuff. I also have PayPal, Ko-fi links for like one-time donations, and those are in my profile on Twitter. Generally, I say that like Twitter is the best place to go because I'm there, frankly, too much. And besides getting updates on all of my upcoming shenanigans, you get to hear my hot takes <laughs> about things that don't matter. So there you go. <laughs> Well, go support her on all her supportable platforms. Check her out. And until the next one, goodbye. That was my interview with Sarah Zedek. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. If you did enjoy it, please leave the show a rate and review on iTunes. That not only helps me feel personally satisfied, but it also helps me reach a wider audience and bring more quality content to you. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, I'm at General Chat Pod. And if you want to send an email with a suggestion for a silly question for me to ask my guests at the end, I am at generalchatpodcast at gmail.com. All right, until the next one, goodbye. Mm-hmm.